Hello and welcome to uh, this UCL lunch hour lecture on a practical introduction to critical realism. I'm Rob Fall Walker and I'm a research fellow at the IOE Faculty of Education and Society and I'm going to be chairing today's lecture and it's my honour to um, and pleasure to introduce today's speaker who um, I know very well from, from working closely together over the last few years, um, Pris Priscilla Alderson. Priscilla is um, Emerita Professor at the IOE. Uh, since 1991, Priscilla has worked at the Social Science Research Unit, now in the Social Research Institute at UCL. Her research covers many aspects of health and education, ethics, childhood, and children's rights, and is reported in over 300 publications. In 2014, she started leading the UCL Critical Realism postdoctoral course, founded by Roy Bascar in 2007. Her latest research, published in a series of open access journal papers, is detailed on the UCL website about children's consent to heart surgery. Um, just before we begin, um, just some, some administration. Um, to let you know um, that we'll have some time at the end of the lecture for questions, um, and you can submit these at any point uh, during the talk by going to the Slido um, link that you should all have access to. And just remember to enter in the event code, which is hashtag critical realism. So that's please, please uh, give me your questions, write your questions. I'll, I'll get to see them throughout the talk and we'll come back to them at the end through the Slido link. And the event code is hashtag, hashtag critical realism. Um, so I'm now going to hand over to um, Priscilla, who's sharing her screen for you now. Um, I'm going to go quiet for the next 40 minutes or so. And then we will return for some questions at about quarter to two when um, uh, when when Priscilla's finished her talk. Thanks very much. Over to you, Priscilla. Thanks very much, Rob, and thanks to everyone who's helped to set up this session and who is attending. So, um, I'm hoping that the are oh, good. So to start with. Critical realism is a philosophy of the natural and social sciences. It's not a research method. In fact, it's useful to use with a whole range of research methods. Many people come across critical realism in the third year of doing their uh, doctoral studies when they're starting to plan their thesis writing. And that's quite a good time to get to it because it's very useful for analysis. Now, the, but it's useful at all stages. The most practical start to any research is to sort out the theories. Theories mean ways of seeing the world. And we can see from the long history of social research, which unfortunately for decades was racist, sexist, colonialist, without the researchers having any idea of how narrow their theories were and the need for them to examine them. <clears throat> so, I'm going to um, start with some examples from my research on consent to children's heart surgery to illustrate the critical realist ideas. I've researched children's consent to children's heart surgery first in the 1980s for my PhD, and then much more recently with colleagues in two London hospitals. In the 1980s, there was a 10% surgical mortality rate. There was only partial success in many cases and that many children lived shorter lives. About 40 years later, amazing, there was an under 1% surgical mortality rate. Operations were far more complex and dangerous, but they had much higher success rates. And there were so many children enjoyed healthy childhoods and could look forward to long term survival. So when thinking about my social research about consent, maybe I could have um, looked at the methods that enabled this amazing progress, thanks to scientific research. Much of it was done at UCL Institute of Child Health and at Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital. Primarily, there were great changes to surgery and nursing techniques with many new operations invented. Then there was the new technology, scans, anaesthesia uh, for um, testing for heart defects and diagnosing them. There's an amazing electronic patient record system these days that 
all the documents are collected together in one base to help with research as well as practice. And there's also research on the comparative short and long-term outcomes of surgery to keep testing which operations work best. Now, in 1984, my research question was, can shocked, distressed parents give informed consent to their child's heart surgery without the um, much fetal uh, screening in those days? Parents usually learned after the baby was born. It was a great crisis. Um, could they understand the information? Was it worth distressing them with the details? And was it necessary? Because obviously the baby had to have the life-saving surgery. That was the question. So could I have followed the positivist, realist um, methods and ideas used in medical research, which deals with facts? and certainties and of course in much social research um, they look for demonstrable evidence there's often measuring and quantifying uh, maybe separate variables are sorted out with randomized controlled trials the aim is to check for certainty and make possibly predictions which we replicated by other studies Objectivity is taken to mean being value-free and detached. And um, one primary aim is to inform policy with evidence-based medicine. <clears throat> um, so with informed consent, I would look for the actual procedural procedures with clear factual information. Maybe I might test patients' understanding of the information, or parents in this case. I was researching parents in the 1980s. And would test different methods of informing and supporting them. The main alternative in social science is, of course, interpretivism and constructivism. And um, this attends far more to experiences and perceptions, personal accounts and memories, describing the quality of the experience, examining complexity and maybe recording ambiguities, uh, looking at individuals in their varying contexts. Here, objectivity could involve moral relativism. I might see good or bad practices, but it wasn't my place to judge them, just to record them and check their outcomes. Um, there are also links to policy is rather complicated with interpretive research because the findings tend to be less definitive and often smaller and may not be taken so seriously by other experts. So with interpretivism, I might look at people's reported experiences, their needs, their difficulties. And all of this is very important information but it may be hard to generalize among patients and doctors and dyads because, for example, the method that one doctor used to inform patient, parents and patients might work very well with some people, but not at all well for others. So then what do you recommend? This um, approach of interpretivism involves processes and so does positivism. It, both methods tend to look at um, at how at how questions rather than at why questions and the key question for my research was why does consent matter of course there is the important aim to prevent litigation but why should you worry very very distressed anxious parents with um, awful details about the surgery with the an electric source slicing open the baby's sternum to start with so um, I wanted to look at it from the parent's perspective to see why consent matters. Now, to look at all three different um, traditions or paradigms, positivism, idealism, and critical realism, um, you can see that positivism and interpretivism tend to contradict one another. Certainties versus perceptions, evidence versus memories, quantity, um, and quality, and so on. Um, when people patch them together, 
it can be quite awkward to balance this across the divide of the very different approaches. However, critical realism draws together the very important um, work done in positivist realist and in interpretivist traditions, puts them together and makes a deeper, greater sense of them by seeing that they are two parts of a, a greater whole of depth realism, which I'll explain in a minute. So, whereas at the bottom of the table, whereas positivists seek to inform policy, and as I said, interpretivists might have rather tenuous links to policy, critical realism is very keen on connecting policy and practice to critical, often challenging research. So, the three domains of depth realism are these three levels, they're all real, they start with the empirical and then the more real of the actual and then the most real of all, the real level. And the next slide will um, begin to explain it in terms of physics. So, when you have falling rain, at the empirical level, there are, are impressions and images of many falling objects. <clears throat> at the actual level, there are specific numbers of raindrops falling in regular or irregular patterns or in constant conjunction, conjunctions. And yet centuries ago, people have might have thought, well, if we look at the rain hard enough and the patterns in the falling, maybe that will explain why and how they're falling. At the real level, the causal mechanisms are shown in their effects, and these are gravity, obviously, and hydraulic cycles. These deep underlying causes are often unseen. Think of the virus, for example, in the, in the recent pandemic. And at this level, this answers the why question. Why does rain fall? Why do pandemics occur? Not just how. Critical realism also reminds us it's very important not to confuse our thinking at the empirical level with the actual independent reality at the actual level. The raindrops are very, very different from our, our experiences of them and of gardeners thinking, good, it's raining, or brides thinking, oh no, my day is going to be ruined. The subjectivity of our impressions With critical realism, um, at, at the empirical level, um, and this is, for example, with re in relation to consent, there's the thinking and feeling, the explanations, the ideas, descriptions, memories, statistics, perhaps facts, images and perceptions that doctors present to their patients or parents. And there's the explana explaining and asking questions and discussing options, thinking about them in order to understand informed consent. And this mainly consists of exchanges between doctors and patients in words and images. Next, at the actual level, there is the being and doing, the ontology of consent. These are the events the relationships, the structures, the actual interactions that take place, and there is the medical condition to be treated, the interventions to correct the heart problem, and the outcomes. So, at the, the actual level, patients really do express their consent or their refusal, and children who may be too young to engage in the consent process may actively cooperate, they understand, they want to have the operation, hoping it will help them, or they resist. The staff may actually enforce treatment on the children, although they cannot do that on um, adults if, who refuse. And now at the underlying real level of gravity, um, these underlying causal mechanisms, they include the policies and economics of healthcare so that in this country we can expect children to be offered heart surgery whereas in many countries unfortunately they are not. 
and this owes to the design of the services. There are also the personal motives, hopes and aims of the surgeons and of the patients and parents. And so at the real level, voluntary consent, I am willing to agree, is led by our motives. And these are guided by our needs, emotions and values. And I found through interviewing hundreds of people that their consent involves a journey from fear and doubt, like, you're going to cut my baby open. No, isn't there another way of helping to treat the heart condition? Rejection of the idea often, to then doubt, and then gradually building up trust, hope, confidence in the clinical team, and then getting the courage and commitment to agree to the surgery. And later I interviewed um, children and young people having surgery and they went through this same journey. It was vital for them to have time to move through this moral journey in order for them to really give their consent and commitment and cooperation. So practitioners' motives to promote health and high standards are also part of this real underlying method um, level of reality. That's what drives their work. And of course, their respect and care for patients. Consent itself is about power and control over decisions. And it's the moment when the doctors hand the power over to the parents or patients and say, you decide, we'll wait for your decision. Another thing about um, critical realism is its attention to facts and values. So with positivism, realism, as I mentioned before, objectivity is seen as being value free. It's all about what is going on, not what ought to happen. Interpretivism is also objective and might include respectful, non-judgmental moral realism, re relativism, so that if um, researchers see surgeons and doctors behaving quite badly and disrespectfully, it's not their place to say anything or comment, they just record and describe. But with critical realism, objectivity involves being fair, but also morally informed, because critical realism recognizes that all social facts are value laden. Look at the photo, there isn't a person in sight, is there? And yet, don't you think that morality kind of leaps out of the picture and hits you as to what's going on? Not only the rubbish and the danger to wildlife, but the pollution and the plastic that's going on. Um, so critical realism argues that all social facts are value laden. And with consent, the essence of consent is about truth, respect, justice, rights, moral choice, invisible values. Next on to structure and agency, which is very important and central to critical realism. Now, in some traditions of the social sciences, there are strong structures and fairly weak agents. Um, your, um, housing or your income really control your life according to the research. In other research, um, often at the interpretive de in-depth interviews, we get the impression of strong agents who draw on background structures to, to um, move on their lives. In a third kind of tradition, structure and agency are blurred together. Together. So it's not clear often whether it's the structures that are having the effects or the agents. And actor network theory, for example, blurs um, structures and agents in that the actants may be conscious human beings or they may be um, uh, bags or pens. The bottom um, line and i'm sorry if you can't see it properly but it's got structures and agents with arrows in between them because critical realism sees the dialectic between the distinctly different structures and the agents working together and interacting so critical realism sees structure agency interactions as shaping human life and society 
Now structures precede and outlast agents, a hospital for example, though structures are only enacted through human agency. A hospital only becomes a place of healing when the agents move in, the same as schools as places of learning. And there's continuous interaction between them with social change at all levels of social reality, the empirical, actual and real. Agency involves meaningful causal power informed by our own human self-aware intention and purpose. And agency is orientated to and evaluated by future effects. Almost everything we do is about moving towards the future. Of course, we have limited agency. As Marx said, we live in conditions not of our own choosing and we're thrown into contexts. Um, for instance, when, when we're born into a family, when we move into a university. Actions can have unintended, counterproductive, unwanted and unpredicted effects. And often we have the least harmful choice, like the parents deciding, yes, we will have the operation. All the other options are even worse for our baby. <clears throat> so this dialectic of interaction between structure and agency, moving belong beyond dichotomies into dialectic, is like that between rivers and landscapes. Do rivers shape landscapes or landscapes, landscapes shape rivers? Agents are shaped and reshaped by structures and they reshape the structures constantly through social processes in a dialectic in time and space. Now, I also looked at um, young people's uh, consent to orthopaedic surgery and one of the most dramatic um, decisions they would make was about leg lengthening for very short children, the surgeon will break the bone, insert pins into the edges of the bone on each side with these circular metal contraptions. And they would gradually wind the two apart. And in between, new bone would grow in the gap up to six inches. Now, in the 1980s, their children spent many months in hospital, up to a year, and all the treatment was organised by the practitioners. They were really helpless, these children. However, 40 years later, there'd been a great transfer of agency from the practitioners to the patients and parents. So in the 2020s now, the patients go home a few days after surgery, they or their parents perform the daily distractions, turning the little pins um, to lengthen the bone. They clean the pin sites and change the bandages. Children administer their own pain relief. This is an agonizing treatment, but it's found that if patients administer their own pain relief, they need less. They keep in contact with the healthcare staff. They take and send x-rays via their mobile phones and emails. And the children exercise and walk to regenerate their bone. They can attend school and lead a virtually normal life. Now, um, research has helped in this great transfer of attitudes um, from the power in the hands of the professionals to the power in the hands of the families. And this involved great changes in attitudes, routines, technology, of course, which has enabled long distance treatment and values too, to see the patients more as agents in their own right. Margaret Archer is a great protagonist of critical realist work on structure, agency and culture. And I just put out these pictures of nurses to illustrate how powerfully the three interact and how the nurses' uniforms denote their status, their work, their relationship with patients. So for example, in the 1400s, Nurses looked like nuns, often were nuns, and one of their main tasks was sadly to nurse dying patients who they could not help to recover and to try to assure them of hope of everlasting life. 400 years later, Charles Dickens' Sarah Gamp was a, a dissolute, um, drunken, disorderly nurse. They had a very low reputation, nurses in those days. 
But then Florence Nightingale reformed nursing. She brought in middle-class women and they were elegantly and um, authoritatively dressed. In 1948, the National Health Service opened and the Queen's dressmaker designed the elegant nurse's uniform. Some of the nurses, though, as you can see with the three um, in their great headgear, preferred more old-fashioned headwear, and it suggested their formidable power. The nurses really had control over their wards. But 50 years later, the nurses and doctors all wear the same unisex scrubs uniform, showing their busy, intensive work. And um, you could go into great detail about the interactions between the uh, costumes and the routines and the realities. Another thing is closed systems and open systems. So much positivist research is based on closed systems, particularly with randomized trials trying to construct them. Um, and the method is one of control and prediction to copy the sterile lab conditions. For instance, two single fluids interacting Randomized controlled trials um, allocate different groups so that the only difference between them when they're very evenly randomized with all the variables um, across the, similar across all the groups, the only difference being the type of treatment given to test what is actually its effect. However, critical realism is much more concerned with open systems. Um, and it, we all live in open systems all the time of countless uh, influences. And one way of analyzing these influences is through the critical realist idea of four planes of a social being. The first plane is our material relations with nature, our bodies in the natural world. One of my students was Kate Martin was researching um, young people in psychiatric wards and she started with bodies and we thought, you know, is it worth it? They're in there for their minds. However, the study of bodies was so revealing about how they were neglected, how their diet and exercise and, and physical health were neglected and how the ward rounds, instead of going from bed to bed in the wards, happened in the doctor's office, away from the patients and their bodies. And this um, did not um, help the standards of care at all. And it was really important to analyze that. Plane two are the interpersonal subjective relationships we have between individuals and groups. Plane three is the broader social relations and inherited structures. And plane four is our inner being, our stratified personality. Um, life is complex, often unpredictable. And it's very helpful to analyze your data um, using these four planes. And many PhD students um, base their four main chapters in their thesis on the four planes of social being. It's extremely helpful for uh, analyzing and organizing your data. Another great advantage of these planes is that if you even if you only have time to do a small brief study, you can nest it inside reference to much larger data sets, particularly say for stage plane three, the, the social relations and inherited structures. So that say you are doing a, a study of consent to surgery, you can look at the structure of the and history of the NHS. Um, and the way the local, national and supra-regional levels like children's heart surgery are organized and the relationships between them. Um, inner being is extremely important for looking at um, the real reality and nature of consent, as I described earlier. Uh, the final critical realism idea I'm going to share with you today is the four stages of um, transformative change. And they're very useful in for analyzing any research pro project and for planning them. Now, the first stage is 
non-identity, absence, and as particularly ethnographers would say, it's so important to go in with a kind of empty mind as far as you can, to stand back, to suspend your own stereotypes, to try to grasp the reality, the ontology, the local meanings, and the many interacting causal mechanisms. Be open and ready for it all to flow in and then to try to make sense as much as possible in the terms that the people involved are doing so. So non-identity means don't impose meanings, identities on things. Instead, examine everything very carefully and try to search for the me meaning within it. Deep learning. Stage two is negativity and power. And this is about recognizing absence, need, suffering, contradiction, missing absent care. Um, for instance, in the 1980s, when I began to research consent, um, research ethics and ethics in treat treatment were not very well organized or much thought of. There wasn't much training about them. Um, doctors were paternalistic and thought patients should do as I say. <clears throat> so that um, I had to look at, do we need consent? Um, does it cause more suffering than it needs, even more suffering? Or is the absence of consent leading to need and suffering and contradiction? Yes, it was. And so then the researcher has to intervene to negate the negations, absent the absences, fill in the missing gaps. Of course, with practical research, some action research, researchers intervene with some intervention. But um, for most researchers, the actual intervention is to go in and to start collecting your data. Stage three is open totality. And that involves observing interventions and their effects in the bigger picture. For instance, looking at the whole person and maybe the family, community, state, the culture, perhaps effects of globalization, the political and economic contexts. And critical realism is so valuable in being able to connect and draw all these different things together to make sense of them. And the fourth stage is praxis or practical application of findings as far as possible. Uh, promotion, um, publication and promotion of your findings, but also you hope self-transformative agency towards freedom, solidarity and justice so that um, researchers think how has research changed me as well as we hope changing the context and the people involved when you collected the data. So it's about movement, change, new self-awareness, about everything working consciously and intentionally for real change. And then uh, researchers, having gained these new insights from all their work, may return to stage one with their next project and using that work, repeat this virtuous cycle. I also suggest that uh, these mini stages happen constantly for every doctor or nurse patient interaction. They go through collecting the evidence, checking the diagnosis, deciding on the treatment, stepping back and looking at the short and long term outcomes, and then reflecting on what has been learned, and then taking it back to start again with the next patient. Of course, they don't have time to consciously do this every time they see all their hundreds of patients. But overall, I suggest these cycles are happening and again in our daily lives as well. But there's also a malign version of this process, and that is to ignore stages one, three and four and remain stuck at stage two, the intervention. So we hear build the wall or stop the boats. It doesn't work, partly because of the lack of um, exploration and proper gathering of information at stage one. But when the intervention fails, people stuck at stage two simply say, repeat it, do it harder. Now, to do it in the malign stage two only way blocks self-awareness, shared consciousness and work for real change. 
it offers no new insights or hope of progress as to why people are coming on the um, boats or why do they want to cross the space where the wall is uh, what can be done to help them and to prevent this um, travel and this suffering and to find better alternatives or to see if they really do um, need to uh, use um, use the boats and to help them for, with that. So um, the four stage process uh, shows how necessary it is to start at number one, stand back and collect knowledge to begin with. Now Douglas Papura has suggested um, four uh, seven commitments that all social scientists need to um, respect and I'll go through them and it would be so interesting here from the discussion if you agree with us and whether you think it's um, possible to do it in every project. So number one, respect each agent as an embodied centre of conscious experiences, intentions and motives. That tends to mean working with a limited number of agents and getting to know them. Number two, respect objective human relations and social structures. And think about social structures, not as just the built environment, but also as um, structures of competition, power, inequality, and of working in structure and agency dialectic. Number three, Combine intensive micro methods of observations and interviews with extensive or macro methods. Um, and so that can help to increase trust in intensive ethnography, ethnography narrative and history, which Papora thinks we should respect more than is often done and see them as sources of valid causal explanations. And he warns we need to have less trust in statistics and explanations and predictors that often um, are not all that reliable. On the other hand, the statistics, for instance, of numbers of people in poverty and so on are immensely, immensely important. <clears throat> Number five, meta theory. Um, be clear and specific about what theories you are using. He says that is central to social sociology if it is to be a social science, which means being explicit about your theories. So critical analysis of underlying theories and assumptions in all social research is so important. And these theories might be about the nature of reality and existence of belief and why we should believe things of proof and how we know what we're observing and accuracy. Um, theories of knowledge, perspectives, and theories that underline our choice and use of research methods. Papora argues that theory is much more than hypotheses and definitions. And one of the most important theories that uh, is shaping our research is the question, what must the world be like for this to occur? And again, for example, when you challenge assumptions and theories about racism, sexism, colonialism, that involves thinking, what would a world without racism beyond colonialism, what would that involve? How would everything have to change? <clears throat> Number six is to recognise truth, not to be um, relativist. Um, our social science, relativism and natural science, validism, fallibilism grounds for this general public cynicism fake news because we seem as social scientists then to be removing the grounds for validating truth papura and critical realists argue there really is a truth at the real level of gravity an infinite powerful force and number seven is respecting the inherent values in social facts so that while objectivity means being fair, open and impartial, it does not mean being neutral or amoral about, for example, injustice and oppression. Now, I'm not going to go through this long list, 
but it's to demonstrate the interrelated um, many facets of um, the problems facing us of um, the cri climate crisis, inequalities, financial crises, AI, um, all of these working together, interacting and influencing one another. So it's impossible really to deal with one alone satisfactorily. And they include social, political and economic dimensions. So that critical realism, we argue, offers all kinds of theories and frameworks that help people from many different disciplines work together, trust one another, complement each other's work, enrich and illuminate it. And the point is to change it. So critical realism, critical comes from the tradition of the Marxist research. We aim to work together for a normative order informed by the values of trust, solidarity, sensitivity to suffering, nurturing and care in universal reciprocally recognized rights, freedoms and duties. Um, that's the notice about my book, which although it's about health and illness, um, is actually all the ideas and it can be applied to any kind of research. And as the pandemic showed us, health and illness actually affect every aspect of our lives, don't they? Um, you, if you order it from Policy Press, you can get 50% discount as long as you use the code BUP23. Um, <clears throat> Also, Rob and I conducted um, a 10 part introductory teaching series on critical realism, which is on YouTube. Here, there's some references. I'm happy to send the PowerPoint to anyone who would like them. And thank you very much for listening. Thanks very much, Priscilla. Um, uh, that was a really fascinating talk. And um, despite the fact that you and I have taught lots of these concepts together on the course, it was um, uh, it, it still got me thinking. There was still, you still developed my thinking, which I, and I think that just shows how when we engage with critical realism, we're engaging with with real complexity, and there's always much much to be learned. Um, and I just want to just just go back over a couple of things that you said before 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 turning to the questions. And um, something that I thought that really struck me, and I thought was particularly profound, was that you pointed out how disaggregating the empirical from the actual and the real in looking at consent to surgery, you ended up with this vastly complex ontology that, that, that resulted in, in consent or, or was related to consent. And just the three three things that were in, in the midst of there were trust, hope, and courage. And I and I thought that was just it was a brilliant reminder that often those are the kind of things that get over get overlooked in social science research, um, which perhaps is it means that my next question is has been slightly led, but I just, I just wondered if you'd answer one of the questions that you posed to yourself, which is, um, you, you said just now, you said I could have, or you said, could I have followed a positive, positivist or, or realist approach to research consent to heart surgery? And I, I just wanted to ask you, you know, what might have happened had you followed one of those approaches rather than followed a realist, uh, a critical realist approach? Yes, well, um, the uh, mainly the positive one is that they're conducted by psychologists to measure, aren't they, um, people's reactions. Um, and I was very new to sociology at the time. And by the way, I hadn't heard of critical realism till many years later. And it was a revelation to come across critical realism that explains a lot of where I've been feeling towards. Uh, it would have illuminated and supported it immensely at the time. And since then, doing further research on consent, it has been so useful. So um, my first um, PhD supervisor wanted me to do a very um, interpretive um, method of moral accounts and to listen to the parents and the doctors, or mainly the parents, and how they presented themselves as a good parent in interviews to me. But um, that would not have helped me um, um, research consent because research is to consent is based on the relationship of trust and mutual respect between the doctor 
and patient or parent. This relationship is essential, whereas the moral accounts are all very isolated and they look at the, the person's interview with the researcher. So um, I had to change supervisors, so that was quite complicated and difficult. Um, and I think I was often working in the dark um, and uh, um, critical realism would have um, enormously helped me. I'm sorry, my camera's gone. I'll try and fix it, Rob. Okay, yeah. well, that's fine. Well, we, we, we're just in the questions, so I'll, I'll, I'll fire a few more questions towards you, Wally, if you can yeah. do, do the two together. Um, no, that's, I mean, yeah, no, it's really, and I, and I think it's it's helpful for you to say, particularly as there may be people who are studying PhDs at the moment, talking about difficulties around, you know, the, the sort of nightmare scenario of having to switch, switch supervisor, which you obviously managed with, you know, there were obviously some difficulties, but got through it. So, um, you know, I, I hope that people find some solace in that if they are encountering difficulties in their PhD. Um, Priscilla, I'm going to just jump into one very, very, very broad question, which is um, from from someone here, and I'm afraid I haven't got people's names. I'm just they're just listed as anonymous, so I'm sorry that I'm not giving your names out. But um, the question is, what are the key differences between critical realism and critical theory? I'm so sorry about my camera. I'll I'll give up on that and try to concentrate on the question. I do apologise. Um, between our oh, Critical theory is mainly the Marxist tradition of trying to change the world. And it mainly uses um, the positivist and interpretivist methods and approaches I, I explained, plus the critical aspect. Whereas critical realism has new approaches to what is real, um, what is um, in our thinking, our epistemology, and what is the independent existing world ontology that we're studying and also critical realism of course has got books and books of ideas and theories and it's got this wonderful huge dictionary by Mervyn Hartwig as well that grows into immense detail about the many many theories that will help you however just to remind you that I showed the ladder at the beginning and I do suggest that anyone starting critical realism, and also I have in mind very busy PhD supervisors who have a student who wants to use critical realism, but themselves haven't used it. I do hope this will be a, a helpful basic introduction. Um, but the, uh, the difference is to um, start with just a few of the most basic critical realist theories and work thoroughly with them, rather than feeling you've got to introduce a whole lot of them. Great, thanks very much. And just to just to reiterate on that 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 the question there as well with with critical realism, critical theory. I think with with oh great, you're back. To Priscilla. With, as Priscilla was saying, I think the the thing to think about with that distinction from what Priscilla from Priscilla's slides was the the slide that that distinguished between the empirical, the actual, and the real, where you're really focusing on what on what is real. Um, and, it, and, and I certainly found when I encountered critical realism, having having felt often felt quite at sea dealing with with a more kind of traditional critical approach um, with critical realism, you can suddenly feel grounded because you're dealing with reality. You're not just kind of in, in the void, so to speak. Um, and just and also just as Priscilla was saying, the, the dictionary of critical realism, um, because you're dealing with a, an understanding of the world structured in a slightly different way, there is a a slightly different language to learn um and so i mean even 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 though i've been working critical realism for a few years now i still i was i had that sitting on my desk because you still have to turn to it often um and it's a very important resource so don't don't feel lost because you don't understand every sentence that you read in the journal of critical realism we all struggle and we all have to have to go back to the dictionary and and find our way um so ne next question for you priscilla is um uh again this is a I think it's going to be a very broad answer, but which which qualitative 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 methods of analysis does critical realism work best with? Again, um, back to my near my beginning, um, critical realism is so much theory rather than method. But I think the best method is the one that best suits you, that you're most happy and comfortable with, and also, of course, the best method for answering the questions for your specific research and then adapting critical realism to that. Right, yeah. Um, and I think that's also probably worth pointing out that when 
you know, at the annual critical realism conference, there are all sorts of different methods. You know, almost any any method you can imagine is 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 present there. Um, it is a very very broad broad church, church to use that analogy. Um, that, the next people, one, sorry, go on. Some people do use actor network theory and, and critical realism. So again, critical realists critical realists disagree with each other as well, of course, about so. And, and, and also, I think you can, I mean, something that Roy Vascar, the, the founder of critical realism, wrote was that all, all good science and social science has always been critical realist. So if you if you are using different approaches, you know, you might you may read, read other research and think, well, these people have gone into a depth ontology. They've gone deep into what is real. And that may well be critical realist without it being called critical realist. It's not something that has to be kind of shouted about necessarily. Yes, um, I, I did research for about 30 years before I came across critical realism, and it was um, just so helpful to feel what I've been working towards, often feeling rather in the dark, was waiting mm. there. Another thing is that Douglas Papora, whose seven commitments I ended with, uh, says there's much good research, um, but often critical realism could make it even better. Yeah, yeah um and um so i'm gonna on, on to another question um and i sort of hesitate hesitate to say this one priscilla so but, uh, but i think this this will be lead to an interesting bit of uh, an interesting response i'm sure um i'm conducting a systematic review how could i justify i am a critical realist for this research method Yes, and the systematic reviews are very much influenced by um, Ray Pawson, who said that his um, work on realism and realist evaluation um, was influenced at first by Roy Basker, but then later he had rather a falling out um, with critical realists. And for example, one big difference is that Ray Pawson um, says that um, his work is value free. That's one example. But that doesn't mean everyone doing systematic reviews has to be value free. Um, and um, quite a lot of people do combine critical realism and realist evaluation. And that becomes very evident in the Journal of Critical Realism, um, which is really worth looking at. The, the five issues a year, I think. And it's shot up in the citation index. Um, and it's full of the great variety of different methods being used. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody doing systematic reviews has written in the journal. Um, I also suggest that um, Dave Elder Vass runs a, a network on um, critical realism. And um, you could um, send an inquiry to find out if uh, get in touch with other people around the world. Combining critical realism, systematic reviews, that's another thing. And I think also on the Ramesses network for realists, um, critical realism often pops up. And again, it's worth inquiring there um, about people who are combining the two methods. And, and just, to, just to, add, to add to that, I think possibly the question to ask from a critical realist perspective of the systematic review that you're doing is what is the real that you're looking at? Because are you looking at real people and the real world, or are you looking at the real structures that have constructed the documents that you're reading? And those are two different questions, um, or two different answers. Um, uh, so um, uh, another another question for you, Priscilla. Um, I'll just rattle on because we've got quite a few and not much time. Um, in the table, it says. So I think that's one of the tables in your slides. In the table, it says um, interpretivism or constructivism's links to policy are complicated compared to critical realism. Could you explain? Yes, well, um, I unfortunately, I think nearly all sociology has a complicated relationship with um, policy. For instance, we saw in the, in the pandemic, there were a range of scientists um, used along with the policymakers, but sociology was deafening, deafeningly silent, wasn't it, during the pandemic? Um, I think this is a, a great tragedy of sociology, and we should be working much more on how to make sociology relevant, appealing, and direct to the public opinion and policymakers. 
and I think critical realism is very valuable in that because of, of our interest in realism and being anchored in people's real uh, troubles and solutions in their life and so on and that's just the beginning of a, of a long discussion <laughs> thanks very much um sorry i'm just scanning through through some of the questions um uh, uh this is uh, this is quite quite a good quite a good question here um is critical realism interpreted differently depending on the discipline the researcher is working in or can it only be used in a sociological maybe that's as a sociological paradigm uh, no, it's definitely interdisciplinary. As, as I tried to show, you can use it in physics or politics, economics, and indeed there are um, a whole range of, of critical realists, um, loads of economic, economists who are working in critical realism. Um, it, it's just um, theories that are at the sort of heart and basis of all kinds of research methods and topics. Yeah. and also combining them to right yeah um and, and i think yeah and i think going back to the idea of the broad church it does welcome in all these different different methods and and just in in, in many ways just deepens them um uh so this is a question this is quite a specific question which um uh if i am if i'm comparing one type of treatment to the other and it, we might we might not be able to answer this, but because we haven't got enough details, but but we'll give it a go. If if I'm comparing one type of treatment to the other, what is the empirical, actual, and reality of this? Ah, oh, yes. Well, there there probably have has been a whole range of different kinds of research. So you will have the um, surgeon, say it's surgery, uh, having to um, produce their short and long term outcomes of their operations positivist research. Um, you have, may have nurses um, who've researched how the intensive nursing and support, the physical and the psychological care affect patients' outcomes, the, the whole range of that. Um, there may well be research with patients on their experiences, their doubts and worries, their problems before the treatment, what they wanted and needed to be treated and alleviated, and their views on the outcomes so that um, you'll be work you'll be looking at a whole range of different people policy makers funders hospital managers looking at different aspects um, the cost effectiveness of treatments for example um, and also the how patients evaluate um, short and long-term outcomes in different ways did it enable you to live a normal life were you deeply thankful you were free of pain even though you were restricted. All of these range of, of both subjective and practical um, experiences. Thanks very much. Again, um, we could talk about that very interesting question for a long time. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm gonna finish off with, um, with, one, with one final question, which is slightly, slightly left field, but I think it, it just, if we could just answer it quite quickly, it's gonna wrap up in about a minute and a half. But um, uh, a question here, it says in relation to consent, um uh has consent to research gone too far creating huge barriers ah oh, this is so interesting because i was involved with medical ethics in the 1980s um and really and involved in the transfer of standards from medical ethics into social research because social research was lagging so much behind and it wasn't until this century 2002 that the British Sociological Association required everyone to send their protocols to research ethics committees and lots of people still do not do so and there's the argument that of course the medics have to be very careful because they can kill and injure people but social research doesn't hurt people it does it, it can humiliate confuse people it can disrupt their lives and bad bad um, reports, misleading reports, can um, inform completely the wrong policies or lead to very great dangers and needs being neglected. So um, social research has huge ethical implications. And um, just as a quick answer, um, the fourth version of um, my book with Virginia Morrow on the ethics of research with children and young people, but it all applies to adults as well, um, came out in 2020. 
and is in the UCL library, if that's any help. Um, and we go through the 10 stages of um, a research project from first plans to final dissemination. And we look at the ethical questions raised at each of these stages. And consent, um, I think um, sociologists really do need to respect consent very, very much highly. Otherwise, how can they hope to get people's trust and the best responses for them? Okay. I think that's, that's a but, really lovely... Sorry. I would like to say I do think research ethics committees are going over the top um, in some ways and losing their efficiency and effectiveness, and this is very sad. Right. <laughs> Sorry, let, let you get that bit of for, for balance at the end. That was, but also that was a that was a lovely place to finish because it it, it brought us right back to the to the the heart of your your actual work, um, which was, was a great place to finish. So I think that was. Um, really thankful for you for um, giving us your insights into your um, extensive work and also um, thankful for all of the work that you've done over over the last few decades um, clearly improving improving many many people's lives so thank you very much for that as well um, I think we'll call it a day, day there so thank you very much Priscilla thank you very much um, for Case and Diana for organizing this and thank you very much for all of the questions um, that was a, a, a great session and really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Rob and Kate and Diana. And thank you to everyone who's attended. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye.